So, here we are then, able to get through an, another chapter this morning from um, 1 Corinthians, this time chapter 3. Um, disappointingly here for Paul, he has to address the brethren as fleshly. We will read the text this morning in, in different sections. And you will see the word brethren there. So he's talking to Christians. They are fleshly but not spiritual. And so, uh, somebody took my toy away. Uh, he expresses then in different ways that um, there's stuff that they need to change. They are brethren, but they, though having the spirit of Christ and therefore needing to be spiritual are actually acting unspiritually. While they should be spiritual, they act fleshly. They are fleshly. And so we'll just look a little bit today at that for our lives also. We'll just get through the text here, see what Paul is saying, and then try to understand for ourselves what it is that we can take from this. There are, of course, various ways to express fleshliness, to express carnality or unspirituality. The context here is jealousy and strife. And so, as we consider then today jealousy and strife, as we consider their comp competitiveness that they expressed in their relationships, I'd just like to focus us on the fact that we will, can consider other aspects of how we might be fleshly. Though we're spiritual, with Christ's Spirit dwelling within us, we can end up acting in a way that does not look like that. So we're going to look at these three things today. To, firstly, the fleshly behavior that gets addressed. Secondly, we're going to see that we, it's good to place ourselves in the context of who God is and what He has done. And then also why we should get away from, in this context, competitiveness, but on the whole, fleshliness. There's, a, there's some, some sort of universal reasons, theological points that Paul makes here. There is no reason to compete for them. There is no reason for us to act fleshly. We have to overcome the flesh. So this morning, we'll start out with this concept of being unspiritually spiritual. Spiritual people can really act unspiritually. And so um, we're bearing in mind this morning that the discussion Paul started in chapter 1 continues through chapter 2 and now also into chapter 3. They are connected. This is not a new discussion that Paul is raising here. He's continuing what he's already begun. And so as we look this morning at this, we, we ha have this expression, unspiritually spiritual. It might seem contradictory, but it is a thing. You know, we can be carnal. For one, Paul says it here, but also we've no doubt found it in our own lives that there's sometimes we do things or say things that we just know are not right. Lord willing, more and more we get to resist those notions and cut them off and say no, or as Paul says elsewhere, take these thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. But there are times we don't do that. There are times we give in to the flesh and we can act unspiritually. So here Paul raises this jealousy and strife as being unbecoming of godly people. It is 
not something that should happen. We have a, here a symbol of hypocrisy. The shadow behind us might indicate sometimes how we can behave. We, uh, we're honoring God less and honoring our flesh or the evil one a little bit more. Um, jealousy and strife are unbecoming to godly people. So let's just read here verses 1 to 4 from 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to infants in Christ. I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you are not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able, for you are still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly, and are you not walking like mere men? For one says... I am of Paul and I am of Apollos. Are you not mere men? So again, we saw that he addresses them as brethren. They have been saved. They have the spirit of Christ within them. But they are acting ungodly. Now, we have briefly already mentioned that there are other examples of fleshly behavior. You can think for yourself. Um, there's a... There's a, a List, well, there are various lists of them in the, in the biblical text. Just before um, the fruit of the Spirit, for instance, is a nice or bad list of unspiritual behavior. Right? Romans 1 talks about the outpouring or the outcome of a life that goes against God, that chooses not to honor God, that chooses to replace the truth with a lie. Um, if we just took a few seconds to think of our own lives, things that we've got up to, certainly before becoming Christians, but even since becoming Christians, there, there are no doubt things that we've done that we'd prefer for God to, to weigh in private once we stand before Him at judgment, and not to have them done publicly. We'd like to give a personal account, I think, not a public account when that time comes. So. We can think of these things that we've got, got up to. There are various examples of fleshly behavior. It's just that in this context, this is what Paul's looking at. And we just need to stop it. Uh, some of you, or many of you, might have seen the Bob Newhart, what's that, a skit, a little play. As he acts as a counselor, he says his counseling sessions only take about five minutes because his, his remedy for people's problems is, is pretty simple. Whatever they come in with, and say they're struggling with, he has one remedy. Stop it. <laughs> that's it. Just stop it. And really, that's what I, the message for us is this morning. We just got to stop it. We have the Spirit of God in us. We have to overcome. And there are various scriptures that point to that. For instance, with every temptation we face, there is a way of escape. Okay, that tells us that in any situation, we can choose not to sin. All right? We just need to stop it. We need to get on with godly living. Um, and so he's just pointed that out plainly, unequivocally, unapologetically. That is fleshly behavior, and we need to be real with each other about that. We do that too. Now, he places us then in the context of this God we serve. He is unequivocally God. He is without exception, without any sort of part to take away from him, God, fully God. Let's just read here. Uh, from verses 5 to 17 to, to get a sense of what Paul says, the context in which he says why we should stop it. So what then is Apollos and what is Paul? 
servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. But God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one or the same or similar. There's no distinction. There's not one who's better than the other just because he either waters or plants. But each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one that is laid, or which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work, which he has built on it, on that foundation of Christ, remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. So, God is the one who does it all. God is the one who judges our work also. And we also then have this temple concept that is important for us to remember. As God has, through Paul here, laid out for us this context within which we live, which we need to bear in mind. So, God is supremely in charge and calls the shots. We measure ourselves beneath him, even though we are affirmed by him. And so, these things do fit together. God appoints the servants. God causes the growth. God will reward. We work with God, not God with us. God also, as we see in this text, provided the grace for Paul's ministry, and he continues to do so for us. He is the one who calls us, who equips us, who empowers us, who leads us, who opens the doors and shuts the doors, who gives favor. God is the one doing all of that. It is by his grace that we have our ministries, our opportunities to serve people in whatever capacity that might be. Also, God lays the foundation. He himself is the foundation. He is the one on whom we build. He is the one who gives direction to the structure that gets put up. And also, God, is destroy God destroys because He is sovereign. The most sobering, sobering evidence here of God's sovereign authority in this particular text is His weighing of our work, the judgment that we will face. It's, it really is an intimidating concept. Part of the evidence for God's godness, if you like, for being God, 
lies in the fact that there will be this judgment. A judgment implies very clearly that somebody is in charge and is able to weigh what others have done. We do not have that capacity to do that for ourselves. We on earth have institutions where judges sit and preside and make decisions. We see the power structure there. Ultimately, though, all give account to God. There is one supreme being to whom we will all give an account. And that is one of the great examples, one of the prime examples of God's sovereign authority. We will answer to him. So some people's work will, shown, will be shown to be inadequate, while the work of others will be shown to be adequate or sufficient, enough, good. But we do not judge our own work. And so there is this higher one to whom we will give an account. We report to God. The temple concept here also is important for those of you who've been here for the Building the Temple series, Sunday nights, which we did through the summer. You will be familiar with what we were reading here about the presence of God's Spirit within this temple and about the holiness, therefore, of God in the work that He does and being part of that, of the role that He plays and, therefore, how that impacts us and who we are how we fit with him, what we do in this temple where he resides. It has to be holy. It has to be God-honoring. It has to live out the things of God. Excuse me. And so the key concept here then is that this is where God dwells. This is the dwelling place of God, where the Spirit of God is, where he has put himself, taken up residence, and therefore, we have to act godly. Just stop the sin. We have to be united because that is what God is. He is united. He exists in community. We have to work with Him and accomplish what He says we should do. We should be spiritual like God is. This is, we might say, a fundamental theological reason just to stop it. We, what Paul is saying is when we act fleshly, in particular in this Example of striving for one another, competing with one another. I am of this group and we're more important than you of that group because we accomplish these things and you don't accomplish these things. That competitiveness is ungodly, it's fleshly. It dishonors God. And as we've said, there are various ways we can express this sinfulness. But ultimately, when we do these things that are ungodly, that are fleshly, that are carnal... What we're effectively doing is damaging the temple of God where he resides, and he will take action against that. We really do not want to come under God's judgment on the negative side and face destruction. Now, we are encouraged, of course, that when our work is weighed, if we have been faithful, the work stands. We are encouraged also if... Our work is not up to scratch, and the work is burned up, we still can be saved. That's encouraging. But there's a firm warning here. If we do anything to destroy the temple, to mess with God's body, then he will take action, and he will destroy those who do that. This is a stern warning that we act in a godly way. We don't want to be scared, and yet we do want to be scared. We have to take this seriously to revere God and take 
to heart what, what Paul says here very plainly. God will destroy those who damage, who destroy the temple, the body of God. So let's work together. Let's be godly in all aspects. That's a simple instruction here. To build the body up and to reach out to others, to get others to be a part of this temple of God, that the body can keep growing, that the temple can keep growing. Thirdly, then, we have this unnecessary competition. Unnecessarily competitive is something that we don't want to fall prey to. Uh, we'll just read the last few verses of this text, and by then we will have gone through the whole chapter, and hopefully you will have seen the flow of it, this, what Paul has written here. So the last few verses, 18 to 23, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish, so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So then, let no one boast in people, in men. For all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things to come, or things present or things to come, all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. So we have here then our, our context within which to live in this body of Christ. We dare not deceive ourselves because we're not all that, all right? Don't deceive yourself. In what way were they deceiving themselves? They were considering themselves as more important than others in the alignments they had. I belong to this one or this one or that one. We're doing great things. We're more important. So what we have to do, Paul says, if you consider yourself wise, you've got to choose the opposite behavior. If you want to become wise, become foolish. What? <laughs> well, again... God's ways are considered by many to be, be foolish. If we really want to be these ones who are making good decisions, if we really want to have some kind of recognition of achieving something of purpose and meaning, if we really want to make a valuable contribution, then we must become what the world calls foolish. Because that is where wisdom lies. That is God's measure of what is wise it's almost an automatic thing if we come across something if we have a decision to make that the world says that's dumb by default we should probably do it <laughs> if we're weighing it against God and what he does alright clearly the world will sometimes weigh something as foolish which really is foolish and then they're in agreement with God but where the world takes a stand against God we know by default we have to choose the opposite of where the world stands on any particular issue. And so we need to become foolish. Do the things of God, whether that looks foolish or not. And we dare not boast in man at all, because man will fail us. Whereas God never will. We... Um, you know, unfortunately, had the opportunity to see, and I know that's happened here too, but in Cape Town we had the opportunity to see man fail over and over. People, you know, we were supposed to be there for each other, particularly I'm thinking of Mitchell's mission, I'm thinking of uh, the informal settlement. Human frailty and weakness was very evident there, and not only among those we were reaching out to, 
you know, those of us who are, who are trying to represent God and be spiritual, we, it turns out we're weak. We make mistakes. We get impatient with people in ministry. We get impatient in, in our own families, right? We get impatient here in the church. And so we will fail each other. And um, I've you know, mentioned before the, the notion that we, we can encourage each other. What I try to do to encourage new Christians is to have them focus on, on God when they walk with Him. To make their decision about how they live based on who God is, not what man does. Because if we base our relationship with God on what people do, we're going to give up. Sooner or later, somebody's going to disappoint you, and you will have your reason to give up on God. It's going to happen. If, however, we base our walk with God on who He is, who he is and what He has done, in spite of what man does, we will stay faithful, because He will never fail us. He remains faithful. And then we have this other point that Paul makes, all is yours. In Christ, all is yours. And therefore, there is no need for competition. There is no need to draw up camps, to align with anybody or any kind of ministry or any kind of achievement here in this world, even good things in, in, in the church, to say that is better than anything else. Because what we have, God has given us all we need. There are various scriptures that talk about that. He has given us everything that pertains to life and godliness, for instance, out of Peter. So we have what we need. God will provide the food we need. He will give the recognition we need. If we are humble before him, he will raise us up at the right time. We don't need to get the recognition from men, but really from God. We have what we need. And if for a short while we need to be humble, overlooked servants, then all we've done is copied Christ. There's nothing significant about being the servant. As we read in Luke, our attitude then should be, I've just done that which was commanded me. I've just been obedient if I've obeyed and sacrificed. I've done nothing dramatic. That's just Christ's example. So, the context of our lives then, all we do makes total sense only in God. We need to align ourselves with God and get our guidance from Him and our recognition from Him, be on His team, compare ourselves to Him, obey Him, serve Him, please Him. So while then jealousy and strife are mentioned, we know that there are other ways to be unspiritual. What do we take from this then today? To combat our tendency to fleshliness, to grow out of our sinful immaturity, being mere people, we can take home here a few things today. First, the important thing we need to remember from this text this morning is God is in charge. We should get a solid, solid grasp of this fact and all the implications connected to that. That's why we do what we do, and that's why we have to honor Him, and that's why we trust Him. He's the faithful one. Secondly, we have all that we need in Christ. We have access to all that we need. We can serve humbly knowing that God is in control and that He's given us everything we need. I just want to have a, a look here as a final thought in um, John chapter 13. 
we get a, a summary, if you like, of this notion. And again, it's Christ's example who shows us that all is in God and why we don't need to compete in any way, why we don't need to strive for something in this world in competition with others, but why we can just trust God to give us what we need because he does do that. In John chapter 13, we have a couple of interesting verses here connected to why Jesus did what he did. Verse 4 tells us that he got up from supper and he laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself. This is the, the master of the universe, if you like, serving people, washing feet, humbling himself, being lowly, not trying to establish how important he was, which is what we as people can do so easily, which is what Paul is telling us in 1 Corinthians 3 we should shy away from and whatever other form of fleshliness we might have. So Jesus was able to lower himself, to be humble before these people, the people who are fickle, his creation, the ones he made. But it tells us in verse 3 why he could do that. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, was able to do these things. And that is true for us too. We have come from God. He gave us life. In Christ, we know we were going back there. That is our ultimate goal. It's not about this earthly existence. We're going to a greater thing. That's good news. And, as this text has told us, as Jesus knew that all things had been given into his hands, Paul tells us, all is yours. All is ours in Christ here. We have what we need from God. And so, as we dwell on these things, you have the opportunity again today to uh, respond, to choose to do anything different that might need to be done differently. Um, please feel free to respond in any way, if it's just for encouragement or prayer, or if there's something you need to change, the elders to talk to, please respond as we pray, as we stand to sing. Oh, I did the wrong thing, didn't I? Thank you.